Acts chapter 2. We are considering again a sermon that is striking on a number of levels, not least for the man who preaches it and the history that he has had for the occasion on which it is preached, the Holy Spirit having just been poured out by the risen Christ and from the Father and the result of the sermon that 3,000 people within moments of its conclusion are professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and being baptised into his name. It is, we have said in some respects, the first sermon of the Christian era, the first sermon preached after God's grant of his promised spirit. Let's hear it again. Verse 14 of Acts 2, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to these people, some of whom were mocking them and saying they're full of new wine, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapour of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brothers, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that out of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, 
He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we all are witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brothers, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Amen. <coughs> Let's pray briefly together. Father, as your servant Peter preached in the power of the Spirit, so grant that the ministry of your word here might be in active dependence upon him and with his evident presence and blessing that we might each one be instructed not just in what it is to hear such preaching but to know something of its very power among us in jesus name we pray it amen, amen. A sermon like that is as humbling as it is helpful and as helpful as it is humbling to a preacher. It's something at least of where you want to arrive and gives you a sense of how far you have to go. I trust it's also helpful to us as a congregation for this is just the kind of preaching that we ought to desire. The, uh, the, the language of the hymn that we have just sung, drawing on Romans chapter 10, the gospel being preached in power. Who would not, if we think and feel rightly, desire that? How much of it do we desire? How, how sweet is it to our taste? This then remains for us, not the only model and not something that should be in any sense replicated or repeated word for word, phrase for phrase for its particular structure or the, the precise nature of its logical progression. 
but an enduring example of something of the substance and the spirit of truly apostolic preaching. And I trust your prayer and desire is for men of apostolic spirit preaching the apostolic gospel with something of apostolic power and seeing something of apostolic effect. We've said already, looking at this last week, that it is marked by a gripping and immediate tone. It is very much preached in the here and now. It's based on what they're seeing and looking at before them, their immediate experience, the things that you're looking at. This is what Jesus Christ is doing. There is a sense in which it is preached by this living man to living men and also a dying man to dying men, both the reality of where they're at and the urgency of what is taking place. It's a sermon that is both scriptural and reasonable, loaded with these uh, various texts in which Peter is saying, in effect, this is that, what you're looking at, what you're experiencing, what you're uh, seeing and hearing before you. These are the things that God has promised, and these are the fulfillments of what he has purposed to accomplish in Christ Jesus. So that in bringing the word of God to bear, he's bringing it to bear upon people who are expected to be engaged with this and thinking through this and following the, the reasoning, the argument, the persuasive logic of the preacher. And then we've said it is a doctrinal and instructive sermon. We spent quite a bit of time at the end of the last Lord's Day evening sermon looking at how loaded this text is with truth. This sermon is with uh, the whole, whole range of theological understanding, all of it assumed by Peter to be true. He's reasoning on the basis of, of the, the truth of God across the whole of the word of God, a systematic sense of it, a biblical theological understanding of the progressive revelation of the Lord. And yet, at the same time, just so accessible and so straightforward. This evening, I want to look at another few features of this kind of apostolic preaching, the kind of preaching that I should be pursuing and that you should be desiring. And the next of those features, it's gripping and immediate, it's scriptural and reasonable, it's doctrinal and instructive, it is Christian and adoring. You might say, well, it's obviously Christian. But is that so obvious? We can hear sermons that might not be distinctively Christian. I have listened to sermons in various places that have very little to do with Christ Jesus, that might have been delivered, uh, some of them even more as a political speech than as a Christian sermon. Some of them simply offering the stuff of this life, you could go to a, a sort of a pep rally for somebody who wants you to, to, to live a great life and you'd hear more or less the same kinds of things that have come from so-called preachers. But 
while we have talked about the theological richness of Peter's understanding, the depth of the foundation upon which this man stands as one who, instructed by, the Holy, by God himself in Christ and illuminated by the Spirit, is now bringing that truth to bear, what I want you to zero in on particularly for this first point this evening is the person and the work of Jesus himself. And that's what I mean by a distinctly Christian sermon. And I want you to see the spirit of adoration that animates the preacher as he speaks of Christ. As you read that sermon, who is it full of? Well, yes, it's a Trinitarian sermon. The Father is there, the Spirit is there, the Son is there. But the focus of this sermon and the prominent person in it is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. It is loaded with facts about the Lord Christ. It is loaded with the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. So from verse 22 all the way down to verse 39, I won't read it again, but if you just cast your eye over it or think back to what we just read, listen how that section begins. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did. Verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands. Verse 24, whom God raised up. Verse 25, David says concerning him. Then he goes on to compare and contrast. David is a prophet, but speaks. Speaking of the resurrection of the Christ, speaking of the ascension of the Christ. And as he comes to the end of that section, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. Which Jesus? The Jesus that I've just been talking to you about, that I've been explaining and exalting and holding up from the scriptures of God. This is the Jesus whom you have crucified, but whom God has made both Lord and Christ. And when they say, what should we do? Jesus. Jesus Christ is the answer. Repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of the incarnate Son of God. The whole sermon is Christ-centred. It is Christ-focused. It is Christ-saturated. And it is Christ-exalting. With these ardent and urgent tones. Who and what is important to Peter? Jesus of Nazareth. And the way that the people who are listening to Peter think and feel about the Lord Christ. That's all that seems to matter to this man as you, you effectively light the blue touch paper on Peter the apostolic sermonic firework and watch him sparkle and burn. This is the Jesus of whom the prophets spoke. This is the Jesus whom God sent. This is the Jesus of Nazareth in whom you must trust. He is presented in this sermon as one who is himself God, but identified as a true man, taking flesh and blood, as a promised man, spoken of by those prophets, as a sent man, the true Christ, the Messiah of God, as a crucified man, one who dies 
at the urgings of the Jews and at the hands of the Romans in Jerusalem at this time. A risen man who comes forth from the grave, which cannot hold him. A ascended man who, having risen from the grave, then returns to his heavenly throne, sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So then an exalted man, now seated beside God, a gracious man to whom a sinner may come in order to have sin forgiven and a saving man because in coming to him your sins are put away and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now bear in mind that the people to whom Peter is speaking here largely had the whole of the Old Testament not just available to them but prominent among them. They already know what the Old Testament says. They haven't joined up the dots but they know what we would call their Bibles. <coughs> More than that, Jesus of Nazareth had walked among them. Some of them it seems, I don't know if this is sermonic immediacy or if this is literal truth, that they'd maybe put their hands on him in order to see him crucified. And Peter still spends the bulk of his sermon explaining to them who Jesus is and what the Lord Jesus has done. Now, how much more important is that for us in our environment? Those of you who go out onto the streets, those of you who knock on the doors, those of you who perhaps have a conversation with your friends, those of you who maybe chat to the workman who comes to your house and begin to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you typically find very, very quickly? that the Jesus about whom you are speaking is not the Jesus that they themselves know. They've been told certain things about him. They know the name. But whether it is from a sort of a, a general semi-superstitious understanding that still resides in our culture or what some unbelieving RE teacher has told them at school or something they've picked up from uh, maybe reading or hearing some uh, article or some uh, television show about something or other, what do you find? That's, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Now, in saying that Peter assumes these true things, Peter does not assume that people know the truth that he speaks. And so he tells people about Jesus. And this brief sermon in the summary that we have of it here then is loaded with true things about Jesus of Nazareth. It is laced with facts about who he is and what he has accomplished. And my friends, this same historical Jesus, the God-man, True man, promised, sent, crucified, risen, ascended, exalted, gracious and saving needs to be spoken to this dark world by ardent and urgent men and women because that is the only way that sinners will be saved. People do not 
know our Jesus. At best, they've got a vague notion attached to the syllables of his name. You ask people, what does it mean for him to be the Christ? You talk to people about his life and his death. You talk to people about whether or not they hold to the risen and ascended Son of God. And you will see how little they know and how much God has given us to speak. My friends, that's gospel ministry. That's gospel witness. It's not wrong to tell people you go to church, but who cares? It's not wrong to tell people that you read your Bible, but what difference does that make? Is anybody saved from sin because you go to church? Anybody saved from sin because you've got a Bible in your home? Were you saved from your sins because somebody you knew went to church? Or were you saved from your sins directly because somebody told you about Jesus the Saviour? That is what Peter does. His sermon is full of Jesus Christ. It is truly Christian. It is truly adoring. Peter loves the Jesus he knows and he wants others to trust and love him too. Now, do you speak of him yourself and will you bring others to hear of him? This is so often where the, the rubber meets the road. Do you believe that someone coming into this building and hearing of Jesus Christ will be saved from their sins? Not automatically, in the sense of as long as you can get them through the door, they must become a Christian. But do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ, preached with simplicity and clarity, is God's appointed means of delivering sinners? I think I'm, I'm right in saying <coughs> that some of the, the particular griefs that my, my father knew when he was a minister of the gospel here, one of them I, I distinctly remember somebody saying to him, there's no point bringing people to hear this preaching. No one will be saved here. Now that's only true if there's no Christ in the preaching. But practically, it is possible for us to live the same way. There's no point telling my friends about the Lord Jesus. There's no point explaining the truth to strangers. There's no point asking people to come to church. There's no point pleading with people to come and listen. There's no point asking someone to sit down with me or with me and a friend or with me and the pastor and talking through. It doesn't happen. Peter preaches this way because it does. Because there's a living Christ who saves all who trust in him. And my friends, we may not see that as often as we wish. And I hope that grieves you. I hope it doesn't just become the norm to you. That only now and again in the ones and the twos are sinners being saved. That is not the gospel of God. And even recognising the sovereignty of God in salvation, it should distress you, my Christian brother or sister, that there are not more sinners being saved through the preaching of the gospel in and from this place. 
we should expect a Christian sermon to produce its proper results. We should believe that this gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Peter could preach the Jesus who had been crucified in Jerusalem to the Jerusalemites and everybody else who'd been gathered on that occasion. He didn't water it down, he didn't dress it up, he didn't find something else. Paul would take this gospel to Rome, to the very centre of that pagan empire, in the confident expectation that the same Jesus who by his spirit had worked conviction and salvation in thousands of Jews on the day of Pentecost and across the Roman world was able, well able, to save sinners in Rome also. Do you believe And will you then both pray for a Christian and adoring ministry and seek one for yourselves? Brothers and sisters, speak of Jesus. Tell people about him. He saves no one and nothing else. And perhaps we need to stop dancing around the topic. Perhaps we need to stop hedging and fudging and fencing and simply let the gospel do its God-appointed work by telling people about the Saviour. Peter's sermon is Christian and adoring. It is also applied and direct. It is applied and direct. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I'm saying. It's not subtle, is it? Peter expects to be listened to because he's speaking directly as a man to men. You look again in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. And he speaks to them as someone who is testifying to them. Verse 29, quite distinctive. Men and brothers, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 40, be saved from this perverse generation. (coughs) Peter speaks freely it's the mark of a man in whom the spirit of god is at work it means plain bold open and courageous testimony there's startling bluntness in peter's sermon on this occasion verse 23 being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken Jesus of Nazareth by lawless hands, you have crucified him, and you have put him to death. I can't imagine uh, many uh, modern teachers of effective public speech suggesting to Peter that halfway through his address, he should accuse the people whom he's trying to win of having personally been responsible for the crucifixion of the man that he's trying to win them to. Or again in verse 36, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. 
There are no holes barred here, are there? There's no sentimental fencing and holding back. Now notice, it's not hectoring. It's not unrighteously aggressive. You don't get the the sense here that that Peter's after them with a a verbal brick bat that he's setting about them with uh, with some kind of like shock and awe, smash and destroy mentality. But he is scripturally and reasonably going to bring the truth plainly, clearly, boldly, freely, without varnish, without restraint to bear upon the people to whom he speaks. He anticipates and desires that the word of God preached with that kind of directness will dig into the souls of the people who hear it that it will press home, that it will probe the depths of a man's heart, that it will trouble the people who hear it, that it will, in the language of verse 37, cut its hearers to the heart so deeply that they will cry out before he has finished his sermon. How do we respond to such things? What shall we do? What needs to happen as a result of the truths that we are hearing? Now listen to the language of Samuel Pierce. I think I've quoted this to you before. Samuel Pierce was an 18th century preacher known amongst his friends as the Seraphic Pierce because of the holiness of his life and the sweetness of his ministry. And this is Pierce's description of the kind of preaching that he wants as a preacher. Notice, not so much that he wants to preach. This is what this man of God wants to hear. Give me the preacher who opens the folds of my heart, who accuses me, convicts me, and condemns me before God, who loves my soul too well to suffer me, to allow me to go on in sin, unreproved through fear of giving me offence who draws the line with accuracy between the delusions of fancy and the impressions of grace, who pursues me from one hiding place to another until I am driven from every refuge of lies, who gives me no rest until he sees me with unfeigned penitence, trembling at the feet of Jesus, and then, and not till then, soothes my anguish, wipes away my tears, and comforts me with the cordials of grace. Now, do you say yes or not quite? When you hear a preeminent preacher of Jesus Christ saying, I want a ministry that cuts, a ministry that probes, a ministry that convicts, a ministry that humbles, a ministry that pulls down what does not belong is the appetite of your heart for more of such preaching or for an easier ride you know what the apostle paul himself would warn timothy he talked about the kind of environment that timothy would be preaching in (coughs) the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside.
the fables. And there are people who come to hear preaching because they like the idea of hearing preaching. I'm not accusing you, but I'm asking you to examine your hearts this evening. There are people who are quite content to be under the sound of gospel ministry just as long as it doesn't require anything. That we're fine as we are, and that's all we want. We want the status quo. We don't want anything to be unsettled. We don't want to be troubled. We don't want to be cut, and certainly not to the heart. We want the privilege of being able to say, we heard more from the word of God again, and we were very glad that we did so. And my friends, you and I should be pleading that when we sit under the gospel, that it doesn't leave us sitting still. That it cuts, that it convinces, that it probes, that it leaves you, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, morning and evening, at the end of every sermon, with your soul bowed before God, saying, what shall we do? And if it doesn't do that, and if it never does that, then you should go and find preaching that does. And if it doesn't do that, not because of something on this side of the pulpit, but because on something on that side, you should be asking, what is wrong with my heart that I can hear Christ and life in him proclaimed as truth? And I never ask myself, why have I not shifted? Why do I not believe? Why am I not stirred? Why am I not convinced? Why am I acting and thinking and feeling now just as I did before I went into that building? It may not always come with the same intensity. But you and I, when the word of God is brought to bear upon our souls, should be moved again and again and again to ask, what shall I do? How shall I change my thinking? How will I alter my living? What will I say to God or to men as a result of what I have heard this day? I have to ask... Do I preach in such a way? The preacher is called not to fear the faces of men. Do I preach in such a way that you get on with me? Or do I preach in such a way as to bring you to Christ and to help you along the way to heaven? Do I preach so that I get whatever the dissenting equivalent of, nice word, vicar, might be at the door on the way out or do I preach so that you know that you need to be delivered from sin and hell so that you know that there is remaining sin that needs to be exposed and there is righteousness that pleases God that needs to be cultivated do I fudge do I hedge do I fence do I shave so that it's as easy for me to preach as it is for you to hear what about your witness? Do you hold back? When people start getting antsy, angry and aggressive, is that where you tell yourself this isn't working or this isn't right or we don't want these things or this is going to be too much like hard work? Or do you 
straightforwardly, without hectoring, without letting the blood boil in your own veins. Tell people that Jesus is the only answer to their hell-deserving sin. Have we become experts in blunting the edge of the very gospel that has saved us? Have we become experts in preaching it in a way that sounds gospel-ish, but pulling our punches? Have we become experts at hearing it with padding on our souls, that we're quite content to be preached to so long as it doesn't make too much of a difference? That we're quite content with our lives as they are, the level that we've reached, the, 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 the way that we exist, and the last thing we want is something coming too close. My friends, week after week, the question with some degree of reality and intensity should be raised in every one of our hearts. What shall I do in response to what God himself is saying? You should expect this. If the word of God doesn't cut then you should be praying for me more earnestly. You should be exhorting me if need be. You should perhaps be asking, desiring, even demanding that we need the word of God to come more closely because it is not having its desired effect. Are we seeking the kind of ministry that leads us to cry out, what shall we do? Or have we become experts in either holding it back or turning it aside? Apostolic preaching is Christian and adoring. Apostolic preaching is applied and direct. And apostolic preaching is affectionate and gracious. And you have to hold those things together. Because there's no lack of love in Peter's direct speech, is there? How does he address them? Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, men of Israel, men and brothers, men and brothers. It's affectionate. It's human. Peter is not standing a thousand feet in the air and, and dropping truth bombs on people. He's up close. He's looking them in the eye. He is speaking heart to heart. He is speaking to them and he is speaking for them. He desires their good. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. The kind of love that this man has for Christ is not the love that when they cry out these men and women who are in Israel at this time. What must we do having crucified Jesus of Nazareth whom God has made both Lord and Christ nothing because you crucified my Lord how dare you behave in this way no Peter because he's a man under the influence of the very spirit of Christ says the Jesus whom you crucified is the Jesus that you need he will save whoever puts their trust in him 
And just as Peter will not at any point hold back on the horror of the sins that these men and women have committed, neither will he at all hold back on the hope of the salvation that he holds out to them. Why? Because the last days are gospel days. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. These are not now the days of judgment. These are now the days of mercy. This is not Christ coming in his glory to punish sinners with his wrath away from his holy presence. This is Jesus in his ascended majesty holding out the forgiveness of sins to sinners like us, to men and women who had bayed for his blood and demanded that he be crucified. Paul, Peter rather, is preaching and proclaiming this gospel to all. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry says there's a plank after the shipwreck. Peter has pulled them apart. He's brought them to the point where there is no refuge for them. What shall we do? Ah, it is this Jesus that you need. It is this Christ who will save. It is this mercy that you can obtain. It is this favour that the Lord God of heaven holds out. Repent of your sins. What? Even the crucifixion of the Lord of glory? Yes, Yes, if you held the nails, if you raised the hammer, if you spat in his face, if you beat on his flesh, if you scorned him, looking him in the eyes as he hung naked on the cross, repent of your sins and be baptized in his name. Trust him. Commit yourself to him. The very Christ whose blood you cried for, trust in that blood to save you from your sins and you will this moment be delivered. God will blot out your transgressions. The promise is to you and to your children. There's no restriction. The promise is to those who are afar off. It's a gospel for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. And everyone who comes to this Jesus will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, pleading what? Be saved. Be saved. Come to Christ and deliver yourselves from this crooked, this perverse generation peter holds out everything a convinced sinner might desire not a half salvation not a salvation of shades and degrees but the mercy of god in christ jesus and there's no contradiction between peter being applied and direct with regard to the whole of this sermon and is being applied and direct with regard to the mercy that sinners may have in jesus we can and should be righteously and lovingly blunt to the point of people saying, so what now do I do? And then we are righteously and lovingly free in saying, come to this Jesus and he will forgive you. God himself will come to you. The spirit will dwell in you to purify you, to bless you and to keep you. What a holy art that is to combine the straight and the sweet. To preach appropriately the judgments of God against sin. And then to be able to hold out the mercies of God in Christ. To present both fully, accurately and righteously. 
and to move properly from the one to the other, to expose every pretended refuge and then pierce and not till then to pour in the gospel bowl. Do you speak because you love people? I have to ask that. Do I preach to you because I love you and I want you to be saved and I want you to be holy? Do we preach a whole gospel? Do we preach a full gospel? Have we perhaps become endangered of, of, of almost being content to believe in the sinfulness of the world but not ready to believe in the fullness of divine mercy to a sinful world. How could I not ask, has everyone here tonight received this Jesus? See, no sermon is a performance. No sermon is a sequence of mere words one of the reasons why we don't play sermons on screens and God helping us we never will is the feeding of the flock and the calling of God's people because it's a man with his heart full of Christ looking into the eyes of men and women with souls that will never die boys and girls who need to hear and believe in this Jesus and saying the God who has sent me the God is provided, the Christ that I proclaim, you must come to him. That you may be saved from your sins. And when you do, he will blot out your transgressions. He will take you to himself. He will do for you exactly what he did for these Jerusalem sinners. He will forgive you and he will give to you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And such preaching is blessed and fruitful. Such preaching is blessed and fruitful. It has a proper emotional and ethical impact. The people who heard it were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brothers, what shall we do? It's a great consolation to a preacher when we sing a hymn like the one that we did. How beautiful their feet. How charming their voice. How happy our ears. Our fa how favoured our eyes. That's not about the beauty of my tones, although I hope I'm not too hard on the ears. It's not about the inherent dignity of my person. It's not about my human eloquence. It is about the gospel that I preach and the Christ that I hold forth. It's not the glory of a man. It's not the power of a human being. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Previously, there'd been solemnity and scorn. People had been stunned by what they heard. And some began to say these people who are speaking in various languages, the things of God, these are drunk but as Peter preaches this sermon laden with apostolic truth, with apostolic fervour, 
they are brought to serious concern. What shall we do? And then by the power of God to salvation. This is the result of the truth of Jesus Christ preached by a man full of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God works in his hearers. It's the sermon of a man who's been instructed by Christ and illuminated by the Helper. This is Peter carrying out the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. You might have said, the Jerusalem sinners, Lord? The men who crucified you? Peter, beginning at Jerusalem, start there. That no one will ever, ever be able to say that there are sinners beyond the reach of God's power in Christ Jesus. If he can save the Jerusalem sinners, he can save any. Well, surely then, only one or two. There were people who gladly received the word of God on that day. And they were baptised in obedience to God's command. And about 3,000 souls were added. The Lord Christ had said to his disciples in John 14 that you will do greater things than I. How many disciples were there by the time the Lord Jesus had ascended into heaven? Well, there were 120 in the upper room. We know that there were a few more who had seen him. The whole number seemed to have been gathered to some extent at his ascension. You might have said, what a poor return on three years preaching and teaching. Yes, but now Christ ascended has poured out his spirit and in one day 3,000 souls are added to their number. That can't happen, can it? That will never happen here, will it? Why not? Same God, same truth, same spirit, same sinners, my friends, why do we limit the Holy One of Israel? I've got no promise for you that 3,000 people will be converted this week. But I do have the assurance that God can save 3,000 in this week. Some of you will, will know the, the story of the revival in the Isle of Lewis, the Outer Hebrides. The man whom they'd called in preached the gospel on that occasion came in and they were deeply concerned and he preached in a building not much larger than this had the privilege of standing in it and he preached powerfully and effectively and seemingly without a great deal of immediate impact and the people were grateful for his preaching but it seemed that the longed for blessing had not come. And as the meeting drew to a close, if I remember correctly, one of the men came in from the doors at the back of the church on this occasion and said to the minister, you need to come outside. And filling the field outside the church building 
were men and women from all across the area who under conviction of sin had come to hear a man tell them the truth about Jesus. And not far down the road, there were a group of young people who'd been dancing, had been at the nightclubs, they'd been out in the pubs, and they'd come under a powerful conviction of sin and they'd gone to the police station. Why? Because they knew that one of the policemen was a Christian and they were persuaded that he would have something to speak to them in their hour of need. But it could never happen here. Really? What do you expect? Do we believe in the power of the God of the gospel? Are we assured of the power of the gospel of God? This Jesus will save you. If you will trust in him tonight, there will be as much joy in heaven over one sinner who repents as over 99 so-called just people who need no repentance. See, the issue here, my friends, is not numbers, is it? It's reality. When Jane is baptised next Lord's Day, God willing, will he be sitting here going, oh, just one? <laughs> or will he be saying, one, God has saved another one. God has brought one of his lost ones into his kingdom. Will he be praying that there'll be another one and another one and another ten and another hundred? Why should God not? It is his gospel. It is his glory. So here then is our model for apostolic preaching. This is what I must pursue and this is what you should pray for. This is what I should seek and this is what you should desire. Preaching that is gripping and immediate. That is in the here and now from a man to men. Preaching that is scriptural and reasonable argues from what God has said and brings that word to bear upon people who are listening and thinking. Preaching that is doctrinal and instructive, loaded with the realities of what God has said. Preaching that is Christian and adoring, ardent and urgent in setting forth Jesus the crucified and risen King. Preaching that is applied and direct, that cuts to the hearts of all who hear it, preaching that is affectionate and gracious, that holds out the hope of God's mercy in Christ, and preaching that with the smile of God and by the power of his spirit is blessed and fruitful to the salvation of sinners. May God grant us more such preaching and more such preachers to the glory of his name.